0: Well, since last week and over the next couple of months, we're going to be preaching through the book of Psalms, a book that contains songs, contains poems, contains prayers that have been the source of great comfort, of great solace, of great refreshment, of great encouragement, and of great hope to the church. And because the book of Psalms contains prayers, it teaches us how to pray. Last summer, I preached from Psalm 4, a psalm that provides for us a paradigm for prayer, clearly modeling for us the various elements that we should incorporate into our prayers. Today, we're looking at Psalm 17, the first of the psalms that is actually called a prayer. And yet, in many ways, this is not a typical prayer. Nevertheless, there is much that this psalm teaches us, not only about prayer, but also about ourselves, about the dangers that we face in this life, and about the God who loves his people with steadfast love. So let me read to you now Psalm 17. Please listen to the reading of God's Word. A prayer of David Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from The wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. And as our pastor tells us, each and every week it is absolutely true and is given to us in love and for our good. Now, this psalm teaches us many things, but there are three things that I want to focus on that this psalm teaches us. Number one is the blessing of righteousness. Number two, the need for refuge. And number three, the hope of resurrection. So let's look at the first one, the blessing of righteousness. Scripture famously describes David as a man... After God's own heart. David's faith in God, his boldness to fight against God's enemies, his submission to God's authority, his wisdom and strong sense of justice, his diligence and discipline in prayer are all worthy of our deepest admiration. And yet, the boldness with which he seemingly extols his own virtues at the outset of this prayer appears at first glance at the very least, inappropriate, if not altogether arrogant, and even off-putting. This is especially true because we know that in spite of David's many virtues, he was also capable of heinous sin. He was capable of adultery. He was capable of murder. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. From the outset, David lets God know that he is going to present before him a petition that is just. My lips are free from deceit, he says. Let your eyes behold the right. In other words, God I have nothing to hide. Now, again, that's a bold way to begin a prayer, isn't it? But just wait. There's plenty more where that came from. In verse 3, David says, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. Here David almost sounds like he is daring God to examine him, to look into the deepest recesses of his heart, confident that God will find no fault. I'm telling you the truth, he says. I have willed that my mouth will not lie. He continues in verses 4 and 5. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Now, is this how you approach God when you pray? Maybe Axel does. He's, he's known as the one whom the pastor loved. We all, love, we all love Axel. Maybe he can do that, but... I mean, do you say, I obey your word. I don't walk in the path of sinful men, but my feet follow your way without stumbling. Do you boast? Are you able to boast about your righteousness? About your obedience? David almost sounds like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we heard preached a couple of weeks ago from Luke 18. Thank you, God, for not making me like these other men. But is that what's actually going on here? Is David really being proto-Pharisaical? Well, no, he's not. Look again at verse 2. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. Notice that David refers to his vindication. This is a legal term referring to absolution from judgment. The King James Version renders it, let my sentence come forth. In other words, David is not appealing to his perfect, inherent righteousness, which is true at all times and in all places. That's, that's not what David is doing here. Instead, he is declaring that he is innocent of a specific accusation and inviting God to examine his thoughts, his words, and his deeds on that particular matter. Now, David does not tell us the occasion for writing this psalm, but many scholars agree that the events of 1 Samuel 23:15 and following fit the context well. David's popularity, you may recall, had driven King Saul to grow suspicious of David's motives. Saul believed that David wanted the throne. So Saul was jealous of David and ultimately forced David to flee for his life. As Saul sought to capture him, and sought to kill him. But David was, in fact, innocent in this matter, because he dared not raise a hand. He didn't even dare to speak a word against the man whom the Lord had appointed as king over his people. So as David begins his appeal to God, and it is an urgent appeal, he's not afraid of declaring his his innocence before him. He has not, in fact, transgressed against God's anointed. He has not violated God's law. Now, I think this is a good moment for us to pause and consider a key lesson that the opening verses of this psalm teach us about prayer. Psalm 17 emphasizes the blessing of righteousness. Or put another way, it emphasizes the benefit of godliness. Some of the reasons that we struggle to cultivate a rich and regular prayer life include the excessive comfort that we have in our day and age, certainly in our society, the access, the ready access to entertainment of all forms, distractions, which are ever before us, and even ignorance. The fact of the matter is that we just don't know how to pray. But perhaps another significant barrier Slowing down our progress is our lackadaisical attitude toward personal holiness. Christians rightly make much of God's grace, without which we would have no hope for salvation. We affirm the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone, agreeing with the Apostle Paul that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and that this is not our own doing, but it is a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But some of us perhaps misuse this gift, this assurance of salvation, and we presume upon God's grace, neglecting our obligation to live lives that honor our holy Heavenly Father. And this spiritual negligence unquestionably hinders our prayer life. When I get home from work, the first one to receive me at the door is our black German shepherd, Calvin. So if I enter the house and I don't see him wagging his tail, celebrating my arrival, but I see him instead in the corner of the living room, I know he's probably chewed up some furniture. (laughs) He doesn't even dare to look up at me. See, I know he's done something wrong, but to our point, so does he. When we sin against our Lord, He knows it, of course. But so do we. And this inhibits our ability to lift our gaze to heaven in our time of need. But sin not only inhibits our ability to draw near to God, it also impedes the blessing that would otherwise flow unhindered toward us from God's throne of grace. Look with me at Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Dear Christian, is your prayer life being hindered by your disobedience to God's word? to God's holy word. A few weeks ago, someone told me, you know, Pastor, I quit praying because God never answered my prayers. In a situation like that, I have to ask, well, have you made a concerted effort to trust and obey God? Or is this simply a one-way relationship where you get to ask whatever you want and he has to give it to you? You see, God does not owe us anything. He graciously enters into a covenant relationship with us in which he commits to bless us, but we in turn commit to trusting and obeying him. So are you faithfully pursuing a life of godliness in accordance with God's word, in accordance with the covenant that you are a part of? Are you striving to be like the man in Psalm 1, "...who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, do you meditate on that law day and night? Is that law a lamp for your feet and a light for your path? Are you able to open your prayers with the boldness of David as he cries out to the Lord, pleading his case with a clear conscience?" Or are your prayers hollow and empty because they proceed from a heart that is in open rebellion against God, a heart where there is no place for repentance? We have to examine ourselves and see if there is a disconnect between the faith that we profess with our lips and the way that we actually live. Prayer ought to be preceded by self-examination. Do your priorities demonstrate that you are, in fact, worshipping the true God, or do they demonstrate that you're worshipping a false God, other gods? Do you make idols out of material possessions, or even out of relationships that are not honoring to your Lord? Do you drag God's name through the mud, through your, through your vulgar speech or in the way that you treat others? Do you frequently neglect, gather worship on the Lord's day? Do you forsake that time of rest that the Lord prescribes that does us good? Children, do you honor your parents in the way that you conduct yourselves? Children and adults... Do you harbor resentment against other family members? Against friends? Against neighbors? Against schoolmates or co-workers? What is being displayed on your screens? Are you sacrificing your integrity at work? Are you a cheerful giver? Are you slandering others or indulging in gossip? Are you envious of what others have? Remember, Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Listen, it's not that the Lord refuses to hear our prayers if we sin. Again, if that were the case, none of us would have any hope. We have no business even approaching the throne of grace, if that was the case. But, if we are walking with the Lord, Our prayer will be better aligned with God's purpose and we will be able to pray more boldly and with greater efficacy. This is why James writes that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What a benefit godliness gives us. It invests our prayer with power. This is why David writes in verse 6, I call upon you for for you will answer me o god incline your ear to me hear my words you see godliness gives us confidence that god hears our words because the fruit of our life demonstrates that the spirit is at work in us it's not that we are so good that we're doing all these good things it's that's a demonstration that the spirit in fact dwells within us it is a sign that we are god's children God will hear the cry of his children. Charles Spurgeon comments. A cry is our earliest utterance and in many ways the most natural of human sounds. If a prayer should like the infant's cry be more natural than intelligent and more earnest than elegant, it will be nonetheless eloquent with God. There's a mighty power in a child's cry to prevail with a parent's heart. As we heard last week, obedience or godly living is its own reward. If for no other reason that it prevents us from great pain, the great pain that comes with disobedience. So it prevents us from um, experiencing that. Well, Psalm 17 teaches us that godliness is also a blessing to our prayer life because it aligns our prayers with God's will. It gives us confidence that our plead is just, and it testifies to our adoption as children of God, who is a kind, loving, faithful, heavenly father that does, that does not despise his children's cries. So that's the first lesson, the blessing of righteousness. The second lesson that Psalm 17 teaches us is about our need for refuge. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Here we hear for the first time David's petition to God. He's asking God to be his refuge. He's asking God to protect him from wicked men who have surrounded him and seek to kill him. Again, the circumstances of this psalm seem to fit those described in 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 and following, where David is being persecuted by Saul and his forces. They're attempting to surround him, to capture him, and yes, ultimately they're attempting to kill him. That's the goal. And in that moment of extreme peril, David pleads with God, appealing to God's covenant faithfulness. The word translated in verse 7 as steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, which is not a reference to God's general love for everyone. It's a reference to God's peculiar covenantal love for his people. It's not love in general, but love that is invested with marital devotion. It's as if David is saying, I have been faithful to your word of promise. Now you, Lord, remember your vow and protect your beloved as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The expression the apple of your eye refers to the eye's pupil. When someone so much as touches it, the pain is so intense that our bodies are designed to instinctively protect the pupil of the eye. David calls on God to protect his people like the body protects the pupil of the eye. In other words, to hurt one of God's beloved is to dare poke the very eye of God. That is the nature of his covenant love for his people. In fact, in verse 8, David is borrowing language from a song that was well known to Jewish people at the time that this uh, psalm was written. He's referring to uh, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He's borrowing language from there. It's a song in which Moses, with the promised land in sight, sings of God's covenant faithfulness to his unfaithful people. And he sings that from the moment that God rescued Israel, he has protected Israel as the apple of his eye. And that he has nursed Israel under the shadow of his wings. Moses uses these, the same imagery in that song about God's covenant faithfulness. So David knows that God keeps his promises to his people. That God doesn't change. He knows that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Dear Christian, you must know this too. You must know this, too, because you, like David, also need to take refuge in God. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't have enemies like David does. I mean, I don't have any enemy that is trying to kill me. Hope, oh, but you do. You do. You just don't know it. Look how David describes his enemies in verses 10 and 11. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. Now, it should not be lost on us that this is quickly becoming the prevailing attitude of society against Christians. It has been in many other places for centuries, for millennia. It's happening here too. But notice also that the description of David's enemies is almost the exact opposite of the way that David described himself in the opening verses of this psalm. There we see that David is just, not a man of violence, but his enemies close their heart to pity. Truth flows from David's lips, but their lips speak arrogantly. Without slipping, David's feet hold fast to God's path, but their feet surround him with malicious intent. They are murderous in their intent. His gaze... Is injustice, but their eyes want to see Him fall. In other words, Psalm 17 describes two kinds of human beings: those who walk with the Lord and those who march against God and against God's people. There are no neutral human beings. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 12, verse 30, "Whoever is not with me is against me." And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And it is not simply flesh and blood that we fight against. Look again at verse 12. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. David here singles out an individual. Perhaps he has Saul in mind. But Peter, the apostle Peter, uses the same imagery to describe an enemy that is much worse than Saul an enemy that we have in common be sober minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour writes the apostle there is a battle raging for your souls there is a battle raging for the souls of your children You may not see it. You may not see your adversaries. You may not comprehend their schemes, but you must pay attention to the carnage. The overwhelming majority of church children who leave the home leave the faith. At a tune of 80%. This is not by accident. I hope you understand that. You are in a battle of eternal significance. The ranks of Christians in this country are quickly dwindling. If you don't think that your faith, that the faith of your family, that the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ is under attack, then you're not paying attention. You must take refuge in God. You must hide in the shadows of His wings. You must avail yourselves of the armor of God. You must train yourselves and train your families and the children in this church to master the sword of the Spirit that is God's Word, that they might use it to combat Satan and his minions, to overcome temptation, to appeal to God's promises in your prayers and in their prayers. You must train them to enlist God to come and be their master and commander, their champion and their protector. This is what David does in verses 13 and 14 where he writes, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. When Israel was in the wilderness, Moses would cry out, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Only then would they break camp and follow the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant, um, as, as, they, as they would go before them on their way to the promised land. It was only after that call, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Here, employing the very same call, David pleads with God to scatter his enemies and to deliver him from them and to deliver his men from them. You see, whether in the wilderness of Egypt or in the wilderness of Judea, or in the spiritual wilderness that now surrounds you, God must be your refuge. It is to him that you must call. You must call, arise, O Lord. He must lead the way. Notice that in verse 14, David emphasizes that his adversaries are men. Men of the world. Men whose portion is in this life. Our adversaries may be formidable to us, but not to God. These men, these earthly men, these mortal men, are satisfied with worldly treasures. Their portion is in this life. What about you? Where is your portion? Where do you find satisfaction? Where is your treasure? Is it in any way distinguishable from that of the treasure that belongs to these men from this world? Is it distinguishable at all? You see, God is pleased to fill their womb with treasure, and they are satisfied to leave their abundance to their children. Their treasure is earthly, and so is their hope. It is a treasure that they cannot keep, so it must go to their children, who also, by the way, will be incapable of keeping it. It is a treasure that moth and rust will destroy. It comes from dust, and to dust it returns, as does their hope. These are men who shall be swallowed up by dust together with their hope. But dear Christian, that is neither your hope nor your destiny. For you see, in the final lesson that this psalm teaches us, we see that the hope for Christians is much better. It is much better. Look with me at at verse 15, where David writes, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's satisfaction is not in material possessions, though he was very rich indeed. His satisfaction was not in his status, though he was celebrated as a military hero and as a great king. His satisfaction was not in his intelligence or his physique, though he was brilliant and wise and he was handsome and strong. You see, those are all earthly treasures. As good as they are, they're earthly treasures. They are treasures of dust. David's treasure, his delight, his hope, was in the promise that he would one day behold God's face in righteousness. He said, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He's not talking about what's going to happen after he wakes up from a nap, or when he wakes up each morning. David is referring to a resurrection hope, a hope of eternal life, a hope of an inheritance that is imperishable, a hope of an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading. And that is the hope, that is to say, that is the sure inheritance of every Christian. If the Lord delays in his return, then dust may one day cover us, but it will not keep us because it could not keep our Savior. David did not know if Saul would ultimately capture him and kill him, but he did know He did know God's covenant faithfulness. He knew that it was his surety, the surety of his hope, that it was the deposit that guaranteed eternal bliss for him. He knew that he would have fullness of joy in God's presence one day. What about you? Let me ask you again where is your treasure and where is your hope? If it is earthly, then please listen to me. You will lose it. You and it will be swallowed up by the dust. Open your eyes and realize that you are living in the valley of the shadow of death. All of us are. We're living in the valley of the shadow of death. Where are you taking refuge? There is a shepherd that will take you through the valley of of the shadow of death. There's a shepherd that will take you by the hand and lead you. A shepherd who will protect you with his rod and with his staff. This shepherd told Peter, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. That prayer was not just for for Peter, it was for everyone who belongs to Christ the boldness of David's prayer, Jesus can actually pray without qualification. Unlike David, this shepherd is truly righteous in every way and his prayer is powerful. It never fails. The prayer, if you're a Christian, the prayer of your high priest never fails. Is he your high priest? Is he your shepherd? This shepherd will protect you like the apple of his eye, for he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. And yes, as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he invites you to hide instead in the shadow of his wings and in the shelter of his cross. The invitation stands. It is a long-standing invitation, though not all accepted, for this shepherd has been known to cry out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left To you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Will your house be desolate on that day? Not if Christ is your refuge. Hide in the shadow of his wings, and on that day you shall hear the voice of your shepherd say, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And you shall awake and be satisfied with his likeness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this shepherd, this faithful shepherd that loves us with steadfast love, this shepherd that does not leave us nor forsake us, this shepherd that takes us through the valley of the shadow of death, who leads us lovingly, who protects us with his rod and his staff. Father, I pray that we would take refuge in him, that we would not doubt that there really is a battle, but that also we would not doubt that the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. May that comfort us, may that encourage us, may that cause us, Father, to be diligent in impressing these truths upon our children, that they may not be deceived, that they may know where it is they are standing, and that they may know the one to whom they belong. And Father, I pray now as we prepare to come before your table, that you would allow us in this moment that we take this moment of silence to prepare our hearts that we may partake of it in a worthy manner.